0: This podcast contains adult themes and language. Listener discretion is advised.
1: I want you to put yourself in Mark Abbott's shoes as a good Samaritan for a moment. For the sake of this exercise, I want you to think about what was going on in the hours after the murder of Michelle Lawless. It's daybreak. There's frost on the grass. You haven't slept well, if at all. You've been to your friend Heather Pierce's house. You were shaking and upset, having told her you needed to wash your hands because you had blood on them. You're probably reliving the moments from the night before. You found a car on the side of the road. Then you found a girl inside. You think she's passed out, so you reach in to grab her. You lift her up. Her bloody hair is covering her face. You're frightened, so you drop her. She'd been shot, killed right there on the exit ramp. You're the Good Samaritan, you try to call 911, it doesn't work so you go to the Sheriff's Department and report it. Then you go to your friend's house, you're a mess, an emotional mess. You're talking all over the place. You leave there and it's been just a couple of hours. So what do you do first thing in the morning? Do you bury yourself under the covers and try to wipe the image from your mind? Do you return to the Sheriff's Department to see if there is anything more you could do? Do you drown yourself in a stiff drink? Do you turn to prayer and your Bible? Go for a run? Pop in a funny movie? Would you call a friend? Well, Mark Abbott did at least one of those things. He called a friend. He called his friend Kevin Williams. But what he did then is probably not on your list of things you do at all. I told you in earlier episodes that what Mark Abbott did early that morning is very interesting. As Kevin's ex-wife, Terry, told me, Mark called, then came by and took Kevin with him to, quote, go look for clues, unquote. She specifically remembers them using the phrase, look for clues. Of course, it was not their job to do that, but that's what they said they were going to do. Running on an hour or two of sleep, if that, Mark Abbott got his buddy Kevin Williams, and they hopped in Mark's truck and headed to the sales lot. But there's more to it. We're going to get into this little chunk of timeline here to start this 10th episode. It's not a perfect fit in terms of where we are in the timeline. But now that you know that Mark Abbott would implicate Kevin Williams in the murder of Michelle Lawless, and now that you know that Williams would do the same of Abbott, I think what they did together the morning after the murder will have more meaning for you now. So, again, I'm jumping out of the timeline here a bit. I want to start with a bit of sound from Kevin and Mark Abbott himself, and then we're going to play a reenactment from their testimonies. The phone conversation I'm about ready to play for you occurred while Williams was out of prison, but Mark Abbott was still in. It was eventually presented in Josh's exoneration trial as part of the deposition given to Mark Abbott. So this bit of sound came as Rick Walter and Josh's attorneys, were untangling the lies about the murder. They were starting to put together other pieces. So, again, first, the phone call. Here it goes.
2: Hey, you know what? I was talking to Matt earlier, and uh I said, you know what I said call you. I was asking him No, I did asking him, but you know what he brought up to me, Kev? He brought up that old lawless deal. Uh, now you know, I ain't heard about that. I ain't heard it But, you know, you remember Farrell trying to talk that shit 12 years ago? Yeah. I mean, have you heard anything like that again? No, I haven't heard nothing. That's crazy, man. And they was, he, he said your name and my name and his name, and people been talking that shit again. And I said, man, I said, are you kidding me? He said, yeah. And when he mentioned your name, he reminds me. Man, I'm gonna call Kennedy see if you he heard that bullshit. You know? I ain't heard nothing. I said, man, that's crazy. But you know, I really don't even really care. You know, it's just it's it's bad thinking. Somebody out there to even think that something I do. Something. Well, I like... ain't no telling what Glenn would say anyway. Dude. Man, you know what? I just wonder. You know? No, there I ain't no telling about him. I haven't talked to him. Since. You know, I don't want to talk to him. No. I ain't... I've seen him at the fair and different places like that, but I, I just, I don't. No, I understand that. But I thought you know, didn't get along when I worked with him, worked for him. Right. You know, I that stuff happened. happened, Right. I guess the last time I ever really talked to him was the day that after that happened, when we went up there and you was telling him about it. Yeah. And well, we were standing in his front yard. Right. Yeah, I remember It you know, all happened that night because we at that. Day me and terry and mom and dad he was over at house we was over at car house yeah Christmas party yeah and then the next morning you called me first thing and tell me what happened yeah or down or something yeah and we went up to Glenn's and but you know how he is there ain't no telling what man i could not i haven't heard nothing nobody else that's worth you. I, yeah well it's from a federal prison you know what bothers me and in, in, in all sense you know i just don't you know i it just I, I talked to Matt tonight and I ain't even heard you know, heard nothing like it, it bothers me that, that even that people would even think that. You yeah. know. You know what I mean? And I thought, man, maybe Kevin's heard something, you know what I mean? But well, I haven't heard nothing. I mean I ain't gonna lose no sleep on it, but Matt, it surprised me after all these years Matt says this, you know. Yeah. You know. I thought, man, that's crazy, you know. But, well, if I hear something. I'll tell mad. so he can tell you. But, well, and, and really, you know what I mean? I don't worry about it cause I you know I mean? just the only thing I worry about is people even thinking that shit, you know? But, you know, even even what's her name, all the people were saying that shit years ago. Yeah. You know? Well, you just said a bad place in the wrong place. Well, yeah. I oh, Yeah, I know, and it's just fucking, you know. I tried to help that he girl. You freaked out, I guess, but, or I would have been. Fuck. You, you, you gets, imagine how you know. freaked out. <laughs> oh, it wouldn't matter how drunk or hot or anything. Hey, that's over that up <laughs> quick. No, there's no telling. I mean, I haven't heard nothing. Don't want to hear nothing. No, no, and I don't have. Yeah. I mean, i got enough problems. <laughs> crap like that yeah i know I yeah i got a man in prison for that anyway i know that and it's i just uh you know i just don't understand they, they do and i don't understand it and i really don't i mean i don't feel he could be in prison if so they didn't have enough evidence to him in there for it. man you know what gets me you know i picked out that car you know yeah the car itself and yeah,
3: because that's right. I she picked is. out the
2: car. You got somebody that pulled up beside you. Right, right, yeah. And that car came, you know, came up beside me, remember? Yeah. And, I, I, and you know, I can almost remember that car still today. Oh, but, I bet you can. Yeah, and I can remember her. I can remember basically everything. After. I can't, I haven't forgotten any of it, really. Were you seeing her? Huh? What happened, was you? No, I never, I never, you know what, How dude? I think so. No. Remember years ago, somebody was saying, somebody told me, and I asked you about it a long time ago. Yeah, no. That's the first time I ever seen that girl. I'm telling you something, I, when that girl's picture came out in the newspaper, her, I didn't know that was her because her face was completely different than a picture. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because all her hair was covering her face anyway. I know her dad, but I never, I don't guess I ever knew her. You know what, and I tried to talk to her. dad come talk to me and took me to breakfast one morning. And he talked to me one, you know what I mean, and ate and bought me breakfast and everything, you know. But, you know, it was a sad deal. But, uh... Uh, you know, after, uh, but I picked out that car, or I, I the car that was similar to it, supposedly that kid took from a girl down in Sykeston, and used her car, somehow. He pulled up right beside you down there at that old or something, wasn't it? That yep. Was that when he was the yep. yep. He sure, I, I, I don't know if it was him, I can't stand and say it was him, but I know that car did. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, but anyway, it really doesn't matter. I mean, they convicted, dude. Could I don't, I think it gave him 60 years, but I, I, if you talk to Matt again, ask him where the hell he heard that at. Yeah, I'm kind of curious now. Yeah, you know, that's you it, know well, that's exactly I what I am. I don't somebody bring up my name, either. That's the, all you need. Heck, you're... What, what fuck, man? You no. Know, you want to come home? Yeah, I mean, none of that bullshit, you know, but, <laughs> but I don't... Well, I'm the deal is. this college from a federal prison. Or else for some bullcrap. Yeah, for some fucking I mean, you're settled, I mean, you're ready to get your time over with and come home. Yeah, I don't know about nothing. <laughs> you right. know that? I don't know about nothing. <laughs> we'll call him tomorrow and ask him about that. Yeah, ask him about that. he has got me curious now. Yeah. He said they was bringing up my name today? Well, he even said they brought up his name. And I can't even remember where Matt was that night. I know he probably messing around some old or somewhere. You know what I mean? <laughs> you know what I mean? But, but you know, but he went with but me, and you was hanging out then. Yeah. And you just couldn't go with us. No. Yeah, you're old lady, says, you're staying in. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I'm your host, Bob Miller. You're listening to the Lawless Files.
2: Bill Farrell, Kevin Williams, and a whole bunch of other people were getting paychecks from a bullshit company called Morley paying and excavating.
3: It seemed like pretty much anything was for sale down there at the right price. And you know, when your sons, our sons may have, you know, been looking at an indictment on a murder case, that, that would be something that could have possibly been something that, you know, would have made an amount of money change hands. But like I said, I have no direct knowledge of it, but it wasn't, it definitely was not out of
4: the realm of possibility. He said, uh, you know, he said, Bill's been in there long enough, you know, he's made enough money. He says, it's about time a younger man gets in there. He said, like you, you can get in there and make some good money. We walked over to his truck and he opened up a a briefcase and uh, there was a lot of money in that briefcase.
1: Now let's pretend you're the murderer. Let's pretend you're in prison on a drug charge, and things on the outside are not looking good. You know as an inmate that your calls are being recorded and your mail is being looked at. But you're desperate to find out what's going on. How would you go about discussing the case? How would you talk? What kinds of ways would you talk about the case without talking about the case, if you know what I mean? I found it extremely interesting that in these recorded phone conversations, they brought up Glenn Farrell's name. I think it sounds like they believed that maybe it was Glenn who was implicating them in the murder. They talked in circles all around it. Now I'm going to play you some reenactments from the 2008 depositions, and we're going to hear how Mark and Kevin addressed Glenn Farrell in the morning after the murder.
0: Mr. Abbott, you just listened to a recording. That was you and Kevin talking, right? Right. And you were talking about going up and seeing Glenn Farrell that next morning? Right. Okay, no. Why do you think that Glenn Farrell might be saying something that might get you and Kevin in trouble? Because he told me— Who told
5: you? Kevin. Kevin. He told me one time—I don't know whether they still have the records. You can check them, too—because, That because really, Kevin—I'm sure he's seen the statement that Bill Bonner made. I don't know whether he did or not. All right, well, I don't know, but that's probably why I called him in the first place because, in fact, I've called him and said, man, you know, it's a damn lie, and he thinks I really said it too, said this. I said, man, you know I would never do that. It's just like, why would I make up a lie like that? But so you're saying, now what?
0: What did you think Bill Glenn Farrell might be saying that got you and Kevin in trouble where you say, he may say anything. We ought to talk to him.
5: Kevin, Glenn Farrell got in trouble with something, tax evasion. I don't remember what. Called Kevin Williams at home and said, told Kevin, this is what Kevin told me, that he wanted to take, he wanted Kevin to help him take Mark Abbott down for the lawless murder. That's what he said. Now, this is what Kevin told me. Glenn Farrell. Kevin said... And he ain't really talked to him since. Go ahead. My bad. My understanding
0: is that Kevin Williams told you that Glenn Farrell called him on occasion. Right.
5: No, no, just called him just one time, he said.
0: Yeah, on one occasion? Yeah. And said... I want you, Kevin Williams, to help me, Glenn Farrell, take Mark Abbott down for the lawless murder.
5: Yeah, and Kevin right then thought he was trying to get out of his federal case. Now, that's the way I look at it. And Kevin, you know, Kevin told him, you know, Kevin's just going to try to call a spade a spade, too. He told him, hey, screw you. That's what he says, he said.
0: And you haven't heard anything more about it other than that?
5: No, about Glenn Farrell? Why would Glenn Farrell want to take you down? I don't know. I don't know. To me, he was looking for something. Supposedly, he helped take Kevin down in the long run in his federal case. When was this conversation that Glenn
0: had with Kevin to take you down? I mean, last year, last couple of months? No, no, hell
5: no, years ago. Years ago? Years ago, yes.
0: Shortly after... Before
5: Kevin even went to prison.
0: So it was shortly after Josh Kieser had been convicted of the crime, shortly after that? Well, I don't know how short, but compared to now, yeah. He was convicted in the summer of 94. You guys went to prison in 97, right?
5: He was indicted in 94, wasn't he?
0: He was charged with a crime in the spring of 93.
5: Oh, okay, my bad.
0: The trial occurred in the summer of 94.
5: And he probably a few months later.
0: And so you guys went to prison in 97, right? Right. So we're talking about two and a half, three years, sometime in there?
5: I believe he called him before he went to prison, before he even got indicted. No, it must have been after. it. I'm not sure, but he did, or he told me to call you him. You think that Farrell could... I called and asked him.
0: Do you think that Glenn Farrell could have called Williams before Josh Kieser got convicted?
5: Probably. I'd say probably. You know... I'm not for sure, but why? Because I remember Kevin telling me that he wasn't in jail yet. Either he was on bond or he was waiting to show up. What could Glenn
0: do to help take you down for the murder?
5: Nothing that I know of. He just believed in his own belief, I guess. He believed that I probably had something to do with it. But he was probably shooting at straws because he was getting ready to get sentenced on his federal case. You know, a lot of people do that. They shoot for straws, making up shit, trying to get something that the feds want so they can get out of their beef. They do it. 1,100 people probably did it out here, and a majority of them not true. A majority of them true.
0: Okay. Boy, that was a long time ago. And you're just having that conversation just last December.
5: Yeah, I just remember him saying that. So... That's why you're thinking Farrell could say anything that might get you guys in trouble. I remember him saying it always bothered me why he would say that, and it stuck in my head, you know. I haven't spoken to him since, you know. It would bother you, too. You'd say, hey, what the hell, you just trying to make something up to get something out of something, you know?
0: Glenn Farrell, was he involved in any way in your drug activities?
5: Not that I know of. I probably hadn't said a hundred words to him myself.
0: In your lifetime? Yeah. Kevin was involved with him in some way, wasn't he?
5: Not in drugs. I don't believe drugs had anything to do with it.
0: Anything else illegal or... Not
5: that I know of. I don't believe that Glenn Farrell was ever into the damn drug racket.
0: I guess the question I have is, of all the people that you knew, why would you go talk to him the next morning after the murder?
5: I don't even think I personally suggested that.
0: Did Kevin suggest it?
5: Or if I did suggest that, it's because Farrell was a relative of Bills. Okay. I'm sure.
0: Well, what did that have to do with it?
5: Well, I don't know. The next day, I probably didn't. You're saying, I say that morning, but if I had to work, I would have had to work all day, so I must have been off. So where was I at 945? I don't know. And you really can't
0: sit here and tell us why you went to see Farrell the next morning?
5: I think it was Kevin's suggestion to go see Farrell.
0: Do you know why he suggested to go see Farrell? Uh-uh. No? Uh Uh-uh. Okay.
5: You know, his mobile home lot was right there close. You know what I mean? He was in the area. It was like... I want to tell you something. Nothing like that has ever happened like that in my life. And it was kind of like a really stressful situation. i never seen anything like that in my life. I haven't seen none of that here in all the years I've been here, you know, so
0: I have nothing further at this time. Thank you very much. Tell me about Saturday morning. Uh, Excuse me. Sunday morning. This was Saturday night. Tell me the first thing you remember Sunday morning.
3: I remember Mark calling the house and telling us about what happened that night when he left. They left. Let me ask you this. What time do you think the call was? I don't remember. I know it was in the morning. I don't remember exactly what time it was. Had you had breakfast yet? I don't remember. I don't know. Do you remember what time your son
0: normally woke up in the morning? No. Okay. You said Mark Abbott called you. What What did he say specifically?
3: He told me that him and Missy got into a big fight that night because I asked him what they had done, and he said he went to Saxton and went on to the bars and said he was coming home from Saxton. Then there was a car on the side of the interstate and told me what happened.
0: Can you remember
3: as best you can? If you don't, you don't have to, but best you can, remember what he said? Said when he got off the Benton exit that there was a car sitting on the side of the road and he got out. Went up to the car and there was a woman he thought was having car problems and he said he reached in and he tapped her or something or first hollered at her or something and said that she fell over in the seat. So he got in his car and went over to the Cutmark. Used to be a little gas station called Mark right there off the interstate. Yes, sir and called up to the police station and reported that somebody was hurt on the interstate. He said while he was sitting there, a car pulled up beside him and asked if he had problems, and he told him he needed to come with him. He told me he didn't see who was in the car. He told you he did not see who was in the car? He said he seen an image, kind of an image of some people in the car. He didn't know exactly, knew there was more than one, and said the person, when they spoke, it wasn't an English accent. and It was a different Accent like Spanish or something. He said he got scared. Jumped in his car and then that's when he went to the police station. And he told me, you know, he didn't have a driver's license. That's why he said he didn't go to the police station. I don't understand that. I would have went to the police station regardless if I had a license or not. Finding somebody dead on the road.
0: Is that pretty much the substance of everything he said in the phone call or did he did he say anything else?
3: Pretty Well, Basically all of it. I mean, we've talked about it since, me and my wife and everybody.
0: After he made the call, what happened next?
3: he come down to the house.
0: When he was on the phone, did he say he was going to come down to the house?
3: Yeah. Okay, go ahead. He went up to Farrell's, Glenn Farrell's house. We went up there. Let me stop you a second. You said
0: he wanted to go up to Glenn Farrell's house? Yeah. That's the Mr. Farrell that owns the trailer sale lot?
3: Yeah, right there by where it happened.
0: Do you remember if he came over to your house right after the phone call or if there was a period?
3: Yeah, well, I don't remember how long it took him to get down there. Go ahead. You said
0: he said he wanted to go up to Glenn Farrell's house? Yeah. Please go on.
3: We went up to Glenn Farrell's, and he told Glenn the whole story standing right in front of the entryway and at his house and asked Glenn... He told Glenn he wanted to go down there and look around at the lot, so we went down there. And looked around? Uh Uh-huh. What did you see? Nothing. Sandbirds. Did you see any blood? No. No, I stayed over there at the lot. I don't know if... I don't recall him even going up there. I don't recall him going up to the actual site.
0: Let me ask you the question this way. Where is Mr. Farrell's house located in relation to the exit and
3: to the trailer sales lot? It's up in town, Benton, Missouri. It's probably two miles away. So you went to Glenn Farrell's house? House. Was he out cutting his grass or anything? No. He was in the house, him and his wife. Do you remember what the weather was like? No, I don't remember. I know it was raining or nothing like that. Okay. Now, you and Mr.
0: Abbott talked to Mr. Farrell at Mr. Farrell's house. Yeah. Did he give you permission to go, you and Mr. Abbott, permission to go look at the trailer sales lot? Yeah. And did you go with Mr. Abbott to the trailer sales lot? Yeah. Were you driving in the same vehicle? Yeah. Who was driving? Mark. Was that a pickup truck, an S10? Yeah. When you got to the trailer sales lot, what did you do?
3: We just went down the outer road there and pulled in a lot and circled around in the parking area out there, and I don't even think we got out of the vehicles, our vehicle. So you were with him the whole time? He was pointing up there explaining the whole thing, and yeah, I was with him the whole time.
0: When he was explaining the thing to Mr. Farrell at the house, was it substantially the same story that he told you on the phone? Yeah. When he was explaining it to you in the truck, was it substantially the same story he told you on the phone? Yeah, yeah. To your knowledge, did Mr. Abbott know Joshua Keezer? Not to my knowledge, I've never heard his name before. You mentioned that you first, when you first discussed this with Mr. Abbott, he indicated that he couldn't see who was in the truck, not the truck, uh, excuse me, the car.
3: The car. Is that? Kind of seen an outline of a person but he couldn't actually see them perfect. Did you ever discuss
0: the case with him after this day?
3: I mean, not really, no.
1: After Josh's trial, when documents became public, Glenn Farrell sent a letter to the court telling the court that Mark and Kevin were in error when they said they went to Glenn Farrell's house the morning after the murder. Glenn Farrell claims Kevin introduced Mark to him a couple of weeks after the murder. So it's basically two against one. We have a triangle of people here with interesting ties to Bill Farrell, arguing about exactly what happened in the morning after the murder. We have the suspect, Mark Abbott, who was never considered a suspect by the former sheriff, and whose father allegedly accompanied Bill Farrell to Robert Taco Mancillas' house to confront him about his knowledge about the murder weapon, Then we have another suspect, Kevin, who, according to attorney David Rosner, was getting checks from the same mysterious business account as the former sheriff and has had other interactions, which we'll be getting into here in a minute. And we have the business owner, Glenn Farrell, who received a letter of support from the former sheriff after pleading guilty to federal fraud charges. Glenn Farrell and Marvin Lawless were friends. They went to the same country church where Michelle is now buried. They were roughly the same age. Glenn Farrell was interviewed by Brandon Cade, Rick Walter's new hired detective, about this case. When that interview happened, Walter told me, Glenn Farrell would not look the officers in the eye, and he looked away toward the wall when officers began to ask questions. Glenn Farrell was in a position to potentially help investigators find out who killed his friend's daughter. Instead, Glenn Farrell was evasive, and after his first interaction, his lawyer wrote a letter to Walter saying Glenn Farrell would not subject himself to interviews without an attorney present.
6: We left off last episode with Kevin
1: Williams, calling the new sheriff, Rick Walter, and wanting to visit with him. And we'll get to that here in just a second. But for now, I want to take a step back and kind of review where we are. It's a big, big case. This has been a long podcast full of different characters and twists. So let's review, especially the parts that involve Bill Farrell. We have Mark Abbott, who told more than 13 contradictory statements but was never treated as a suspect, blood never drawn, DNA not swabbed, and this is the guy who pointed the finger at Josh Keiser at trial. We have Bill Farrell taking his most experienced deputy off the case. We have Bill Farrell saying, quote, I don't know, unquote, when confronted with the question of why he didn't take these measures against a person who found the body and a man who became a felon at the age of 17. We have a witness, Amanda Jury, saying under oath that she was pressured by Bill Farrell and enticed by a reward to say that Josh had been involved. When she didn't do that, she was polygraphed, and she passed, but a polygraph was never taken from Mark Abbott. We have some of the same information from jailhouse snitches who said that they were pressured to say something against Josh. We have the highway patrolman in the case, Don Wyndham, explaining multiple times in court that he was not aware of pending murder charges against Josh. Rather, Bill Farrell got them on his own. Wyndham said he did not feel they were ready for murder charges. We have the missing grand jury minutes. We have Ron Burton, who in 1994, sometimes shortly after the trial, saying that Mark Abbott confessed that he, quote, took care of that bitch, unquote. He told this information to Bill Farrell, who declined to do anything with the information. We have Mark Abbott coming forward from prison in 1997, telling narcotics officer Bill Boner that he saw Kevin Williams murder Michelle Lawless, saying that a pregnancy with his friend was the motive. That information was passed along to Bill Farrell, who did nothing with the information. We have one of the biggest meth investigations in Missouri history happening in large part in Scott County, which included Kevin Williams and the Abbott brothers. And neither Bill Farrell nor any of his deputies were listed as witnesses in that federal trial. We have Kathy Fowler, who came forward in 2001 with information stating that Kevin Williams told her, her husband, and another couple that they had the wrong man in prison. She said that Kevin Williams told her that he was there the night of the murder and that the Abbotts were responsible. Fowler sent a letter through Josh's previous attorney and then followed up with a phone call to Bill Farrell. Farrell did nothing with the information. We have a report based on Fowler's information that one of the twins' friends, Matt Moore, talked about Robert Mancillas, or Taco, knowing where the gun was or was asked to get rid of the gun. We have Mancillas telling a private detective, which I confirmed with someone once very close to Mancillas, that Farrell and Larry Abbott, the twin's father, approached him about the weapon. We have Rick Walter running into Larry Abbott in a parking lot while campaigning, stating that the current sheriff had made a lot of money and maybe it was time for a young man like him to make some money too. We have the statement by Bill Farrell in 2004 that the Keiser conviction was one of his biggest accomplishments. And we're not done yet with all of these ugly connections between Bill Farrell and Kevin Williams and the Abbots. You're getting ready to listen to Walter's account of one of the most egregious examples of Bill Farrell's involvement in sabotaging this case. I told you in episode one, to unearth the reasons why Michelle's killers have not been brought to justice and why Josh was railroaded, you have to get into the soil of Scott County. You know, I said that you have to go to where the secrets are buried. And that's what we've been doing these past several episodes. But sometimes, well, the rotten undergrowth isn't even kept secret. Sometimes suspects come right out and say the quiet parts out loud.
4: There was, a, it was a, a friend of mine who knew uh, a guy from, from, uh, from Commerce, Missouri, and his name's Kevin Williams. And uh, Kevin approached, um, Approached this man, a friend, mutual friend of ours, and he said, uh, you know, he asked him if he knew anything about the sheriff and me, and and uh, he said that he wanted to talk to me. So uh, he said, well, just make an appointment and you know, go talk to him. You know, try to. He's easy to talk to. So um, he he came up to my office, uh, met with him, and uh, he was trying to. Tell me that night that he was innocent, and he had, didn't have anything to do with this. Uh, which again, I, I that kind of come out of out of the blue. I didn't I didn't know, understand why uh, he had. Um, uh, matter of fact, he even used my phone to call his wife to, uh, I guess um, maybe cement his his alibi for being at a party that night. And 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 again, I didn't really, you know wasn't I didn't understand why we was having this conversation. Uh, later I find out and we had he and I met two or three different times and during our conversations, uh, he had told me that he was because Kevin has a construction company or uh, you know he would he, do, he had a trucking company and at the time he had was turning a building down in the city of Minor, and he told me that Bill Farrell pulled up on, the, on his site, job site, and told him, he said, You know, you're the number one suspect uh, in the lawless case. This, this is again, this is what Kevin relayed to me. He said, uh, Bill told him that he was the number one suspect in the lawless case, and that I, Rick Walter, was after him. And um, at that time, it was early enough on that. We hadn't built up any suspects. We were just opening the, the investigation. So that really, that's the first time that drew my attention to Kevin Williams.
1: Yeah. So at that point, you weren't aware of what Mark Abbott um, no. s- said to Bill Bonert. Uh, you weren't aware of the Kathy Fowler letter. No, no. You weren't aware of any of uh, of those statements that came into the investigation. Uh, Uh, ronnie burton no um you weren't aware of any of that stuff and here kevin comes into the office and
4: and 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 professes his innocence to me and tries to tell give uh, again you know it's like he's got this this alibi and and he and he he asked to use my phone and we left it on speaker so he could call his wife and say remember i was at we was at this party we never went anywhere and so i was at that point i really didn't understand what he was even talking about because Honestly, I, there was a, you know, I I didn't know who the suspects were at the time. So whenever, uh, whenever he told me that Bill is the one that informed him that I opened this case, I was also a little upset and, and didn't understand how anybody knew and how Bill Farrell knew that I had opened this case because nobody was supposed to know about that within my office. You know, there was very few people that even knew that I was looking into this case in my office.
1: Right. Yeah. So have you, have you come to any uh, theories or well, of, of how that information got out?
4: You know, actually for a long time, I, uh, again, I was very upset, uh, that, and I, so I was trying to make the connection of who w- would, that Bill would be talking to within my office that knew that I was investigating this. And, uh, finally, uh, uh, one day, um, I, I, the only other person outside that department that knew I'd opened this case was the prosecutor's office. And when I went to the prosecutor's office to ask for any information that they had on this case, uh, the prosecutor sent me West Drury to go down and help me find anything that could have been in the, I, I, you can't say archives, it's in the basement, that they just had stuff stacked, uh, which was very, it was moist, a lot of moisture in it yeah. and starting to rot. Um, so, you know, at that point now it wasn't just my office I was looking at for a leak. It was now the prosecutor's office. Yeah. You
1: know? Yeah. Um, from, from your standpoint, um, you know, so obviously you don't know that Kevin's involved at all in this. This is the first time that you're hearing his name, uh, attached to anything.
4: And that's what him telling me.
1: Yeah. Right. Right. Um, uh, obviously, you, you're ups, you're upset that that the word got out. But can you kind of tell me why that's so important that it not get out?
4: Well, I didn't want anybody to know that we what we were doing, what we were looking at, I, because one, I if if Josh and, and the way we approached this uh, was actually did Josh Kieser do this? You know, uh, so everything I was still looking at Josh Kieser even though I had my own thoughts. You know, maybe he didn't want involved, but. And, and later I told Josh whenever we finally talked and i done an interview with him that, uh, you know, somebody else done, somebody else was with, there's more than two, one person that did this. So we looked at Josh. We thought maybe he, you know, you know, he was convicted. So who helped him? And and uh, if there was somebody out there that helped him, you know, I didn't want them to be tipped off and, and I didn't want anybody else. I didn't want to get him out that, you uh, uh, you know that might screw up an investigation or hurt somebody else uh an in, in innocent life that you know that rumor says that x y and z was involved um uh, so you know you don't want to ruin somebody's reputation or somebody's name just by throwing, throwing their name out there in an investigation so you want to try to keep it yeah. as is close to your you know you in with your to yourself and your, your investigators possible without right
1: and if out. the suspects the actual suspects don't know that they it's been reopened they
4: they're going to go about their business and they're not going to think anything about it yeah they knew there was a new sheriff you know they and they, they probably wasn't at all worried about it because they got away with this murder for years yeah. nobody ever looked at
1: it right once you got a conviction you, you probably think you're in the clear now right yep. right There's always the possibility that Kevin Williams was lying about Bill Farrell telling him that the case had been reopened. But based on a pattern of behavior and other things you'll learn about as we go along, this information really isn't all that surprising anymore. But it was surprising the first time I learned it. I think it's time to let you in on a little inside information to give you a little peek behind the curtain. In 2017, while at the Southeast Missouri, and my colleagues and I were totally focused on a different exoneration. A Sykeston man named David Robinson was also convicted of a murder he did not do. In the course of that investigation, I contacted Josh. It had been a long time since I had spoken or corresponded with him. It was at that time that Josh told me I needed to follow-up on the lawless murder case. At that point, I had no idea that Josh's conviction was anything more than tunnel vision. He tried telling me he had been set up and framed, I thought he was embellishing, I thought maybe he was, you know, trying to make his own personal story bigger than it really was. But I promised him we would do an update when we were mostly done looking into the Robinson case. So when the David Robinson investigation was mostly over, reporter Mark Bliss and I interviewed Rick Walter. And when I had heard the story that Bill Farrell had tipped off a murder suspect in an ongoing investigation, it changed my view of the entire case. When you have a former law enforcement officer sharing insider information with a suspect in a murder case, it sets off all sorts of alarms. That interview is when I first began to understand how much this case meant to Rick Walter personally. He was putting his own safety at risk by opening this case. That day when Kevin went into Rick Walter's office to proclaim his innocence, he called his wife, put her on speakerphone, and she told the sheriff that... Kevin Williams had been at the Howell Company party that night. Kevin came across as a good old boy, like he normally does. If you remember Helen Natvig in the last episode explained how she really liked Kevin and his wife. But she also explained that Kevin was a bar brawler. But he was something more. This is a message that Kevin once left on an answer machine for his wife to find. It later ended up in the hands of Rick Walter. That's the anger I hear about when I talk to people about Kevin Williams. People I've met who used to work with Terry said she came into work at the bank with bruises. She suffered long term consequences from this abuse. I've heard several other terrible stories as well. Kevin Williams has a violent past. Mark Bliss and I published a series of stories a few months later in 2018. I just couldn't let it go. For me, It was the interaction between Bill Farrell and Kevin Williams that pushed me into this obsession with this case. Kevin Williams is in a piece of heavy equipment demolishing an old hotel in Sykeston. The sheriff pulls up in his white cowboy hat, his blue jeans, his cowboy boots. He gets out of his truck and walks up to Williams. It's 2006, so by this time Farrell knows about Fowler's information, which was that Kevin Williams had said he was at the murder scene the night of the murder. At this point, Farrell knows what Mark Abbott has told Bill Bonnert about Kevin Williams shooting Michelle, even giving details about actions Williams took the night of the murder. And at this point, Farrell knew about Taco and the rumors about the gun. Still, yet, he has an important piece of information to deliver to this man, to Kevin Williams. The lawless case had been reopened, and Williams was the number one suspect. Now, for l- another little peek behind the curtain. It's Josh's insistence that kept this case moving forward for me. In some ways, Josh has been more persistent about this case since he's been on the outside of prison than he was within. For many years while in prison, as Josh has previously stated, he studied his bible. But he had no momentum. No one really to go to bat for him at that point. He kept living day to day in prison. Momentum is such a hard thing to get when you've been wrongly convicted. Appeals are often rubber stamped in favor of the state. Media outlets are busy. They can't track down every single lead. But Josh's day was coming. The momentum got rolling when a woman named Jane Williams met Josh. Jane was a volunteer at the prison and she was attending a chapel service with another couple, John and Joy Long, who also volunteered at the prison. Josh made a big first impression on Jane when she walked into the chapel and saw that even before the services had started, Josh was kneeling and praying at the altar while others were greeting one another.
6: Jane and Joy had both told me that Jane walked in and she saw me and she looked at Joy and said, well, who's that guy? And Joy said, that's Josh. I guess Joy had just chosen to believe me at the time because I hadn't won any appeals. I didn't have any attorneys representing me at the time. But she said, he's innocent. And Jane took a look at me and here I was on my knees but also when I got up I had long hair I didn't cut my hair for years in prison I kind of lived like a caveman and some people said I look like a three musketeer other people naturally to go to he looks like Jesus right because I I had long hair I hadn't been cut and I didn't even shave I had like patches on my face I had very small patches my dad that's his jeans um, but I had a very long goatee. my goatee was so long it touched my chest. My, my mustache, I didn't even shave it. Literally, it was long enough to touch my chin, so I would chew on my mustache. I was, it was just, you know, as a caveman. I was, this is where I am. I'm not, well, who, who am I here to impress? She saw me, but she said the first question she asked herself after she was told I was innocent, well, if he's innocent, why isn't anybody doing anything to help him? Why is he in here? So... She didn't know what to do. She didn't know anything about my case. She was just taking her friend's word. Five years later, the DOC changes the policy. And they're no longer allowed to come in multiple times. The VICS are the guests. The VICS are allowed to uh, weekly. But the guests who are not VICS are no longer allowed to come in multiple times. They're allowed to come in once in a lifetime. But due to the fact this was a new policy, they allowed all the guests to come in one last time. So five years later, Jane comes in one last time. She comes in. By then, we had talked several times. Whenever she comes in, she's an older woman; she's my mother's age. Um, and you know, I talked to her, and I I said, uh, and we you no, know, I can't remember whose idea. Maybe it was my idea, maybe it was hers, or maybe it was our idea. But um, we had said, hey, you know what? If we can get your husband's permission, the chaplain's permission, everybody's permission that we need, I um, think we can correspond. You know, continue to have contact, and uh, she thought that was a great idea. So she went home and she talked to her husband. They talked to the chaplain. Everything got okay. You know, everything was proper. And we began to correspond. All we ever did was talk about the Word of God. That's all I ever wanted to talk about for the first two or three letters. But then (laughs) she wanted to know about my case, because she remembered that first conversation. I didn't know anything about. And she told me then about that conversation and asked me about my case. And I said, I don't want to talk about my case. All I want to do is talk about the word of God. All I've known is disappointment from people who say they want to help me, you know, and then they don't, they leave. So I don't want to do this. All All I want to do is talk about the word. So she talked to her friends that knew me and John and Joy and they said, look, you know, if she, if that's what she wants to do, if she wants to know about it, you should talk to her. She's a good person. So, okay. So some years prior to that, um, an inv- my mom had talked some investigator into doing, uh, or an investigator, not some, an investigator, into doing um, a little research into the case, and he had found some things out. Some really interesting things that highlight the injustice. So I went ahead and I sent her a copy of that. I sent her um, a few other pieces of things that made some points. Believe um, the, the statement that Stanley Murphy had said when he chose to uphold the conviction that there was a chance, like, I think he said something like, this case would have been tried nine out of ten times it had a chance to come out different each time um, so I sent her that saying even the judge knew that he was wrong for upholding this conviction so even Murphy did so she's seen these things these these uh, pieces of the trial transcript I sent her and the um, investigation and it set her on a path because she could immediately see something is wrong so she contact with my grandmother. Um, and her and my grandmother through pulling teeth, um, got my transcript and finds these boxes, brings them out. Jane gets the boxes. So Jane then, and, uh, another woman named Melanie Brown, who was helping me at the time, um, friend of Jane's a friend of mine at the time, um, they went through this paperwork and jane primarily she led the effort and put it in order read the tra- read my trial transcript multiple times you got to take into account jane was like not just partially blind but going blind like so at that time she still had her sight but she loved to read and she was really invested in my case. She had people telling her it's pointless, it's useless. You know what I'm saying? What are you doing? But she spent, you know, hours agnosing just reading and rereading and reading and rereading the transcripts and all these, all this paperwork now that she had. And she'd come and visit me weekly and just tell me about everything that she's finding and how it, the more she reads, the more she believes I'm innocent. And we spent hours and hours and hours and hours and hours on the phone together putting together this presentation that she was typing up and we talked about you know how important it was to present my humanity to people that I had to become more than just words on a paper but that my name and my story had to take life so how we presented this was important it wasn't just a matter of presenting facts we had to present my humanity and we were able to do that she you know, she, she lived through my, my bouts of stress. I can't call it post-traumatic because I was in the traumatic at that point. And uh, put some together, she presented it. The American College of Trial Lawyers took interest in it. They contacted their local rep in Kansas City. And uh, he then put out um, an email to all the members of the american college of trial attorneys now the american college of trial attorneys are the top one percent attorneys in all of the u.s they are the best of the best they are the most intelligent most successful most qualified attorneys in the u.s and one of them responded charlie weiss out of brian cave at the time that is now brian cave leighton paisner in st louis charlie said he would look at it he went over it with his partner steve Snodgrass. They agreed to take it. They brought in Jim Worsh, Charlie, Steve, and Jim, then had Jane and Melanie go to their office in St. Louis and set up a phone call with me. We remember that phone call differently, but the outcome of it was they agreed to take my case and told me they were now representing me.
1: We still have quite a ways to go in this podcast before we catch up to current times. But this is the part of the story that is my favorite part. So much of the story is tragic, dark, and scary, at least for me. The story has kept me up at night, it's given me nightmares. It's a unique kind of awful, like a bitter aftertaste that never goes away. Michelle's murder obviously can never be undone, Josh's 16 years can never be given back. But this is the part of the story where the good guys start to come forward. This is the part of the story where good people breathe life into truth and justice. This is the part of the story where hope, at least for Josh's future outside of prison, is resurrected. Josh had a good friend in Jane Williams. She started digging, she pulled on that thread, and she came to the logical conclusion that Josh was innocent. Her passion led to the recruitment of great men and great lawyers, particularly... Steve Snodgrass and Charlie Weiss, they too came to the same conclusion, and they were willing to put in the work for Josh, pro bono. We have Ronnie Burton. He was the first to step up way back in 94. He was ignored, but not forever. Then there's Kathy Fowler. She couldn't stand the idea of a wrong man sitting in prison for something someone else might have done. She raised her hand, followed up, and insisted on being heard. And she would be, eventually. Meanwhile, unbeknownst to Josh, Rick Walter, the new sheriff, had the courage to crack open this vault of lies and misinformation. He would be rejected and admonished by other agencies and officers. But Walter didn't care about policing politics. Conviction has more than one meaning in this story. Josh had his. Walter had his, too. Josh's team was pulling out their shovels. Rick Walter and his detective, Brandon Cade, were sifting through the lies. Josh's murder conviction was buried in that Scott County soil, but it wouldn't remain there for long. Not when his sheriff and Josh's new law team found themselves digging in the same places. I'm your host, Bob Miller. You're listening to The Lawless Files.
0: Thank you for listening to The Lawless Files, a production of Leadhound Publishing, LLC. The Lawless Files is hosted and edited by Bob Miller and co-produced by Bob Miller and me, Tyler Graves. We'd like to thank Jacob Wiegand, Jeff Long, Rachel Long, Jesse Dew, Kara Kaminsky, Chuck Kaminsky, Allison Miller, Shawnee Graves, Laura Ritter, Bobby Clubs, MJ DeGraff, Ben Matthews, and Mason Dukacek. Who helped voice the court transcripts? Again, please go to the and subscribe.
4: I told him I told Kevin that I Kevin Glazer was that I was gonna testify. I didn't even really think there was anything that important to it. I thought it was yeah. just an off-the-cuff conversation at the time that said, Hey, you know, do you really think this is a good thing to do? Uh, Well, it wasn't even uh, probably a week or two later I got called into the assistant chief's office in my death and thing and he said uh, they wanted me off the drug task force that I couldn't be trusted.